protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report salutes red, white, and blue in our evening sky. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose recites The Dalliance of the Eagles by Walt Whitman. In her segment Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with naturalist Marty Borco on hiking and biota viewed along the Neversink River. And we top off our show with a couple of my ramblings that celebrate farm and country life. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. First, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The legal fight over abortion access at the state level is causing whiplash. Late last night, the Texas Supreme Court blocked a lower court order that said clinics could perform the procedure. Ohio's high court also moved to ban almost all abortions. In Florida, a judge is vowing to block a similar law, and Kentucky has seen abortion rights lost and regained in a matter of days. President Biden says he'll do what he can to protect abortion access, but Senate Democrats do not have the votes to change the filibuster rule, as he had suggested. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports at a meeting he strategized with governors over the path ahead. President Biden says his administration will take steps to make FDA-approved abortion pills more accessible and ensure that people are not blocked from traveling across state lines to have the procedure. Biden is also urging Americans to make abortion an election issue this fall. The choice is clear. We either elect federal senators and representatives who will codify Roe, or Republicans who will elect the House and Senate who will try to ban abortions nationwide. Nationwide. Some Democrats are pushing Biden to explore a number of executive actions, including allowing abortions to be performed on federal property. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The driver in the San Antonio, Texas truck tragedy says he did not know the air conditioning had failed. Fifty-three people died after being abandoned in the sweltering trailer. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports four people are facing charges. Omero Zamorano Jr., the driver, appeared in court on Thursday. He's charged with smuggling resulting in death. Prosecutors say Christian Martinez of Palestine, Texas, had been communicating with the driver about the smuggling event via phone records. He's also charged in connection with the deaths, but is not yet scheduled to appear in court. The truck itself was registered to a home in San Antonio. Two men found there, a father and son, both citizens of Mexico, are charged with illegal weapons possession. A defense attorney for the son says Juan Claudio de Luna Mendez had nothing to do with the smuggling incident and is not facing charges directly related to it. I'm Joy Palacios in San Antonio. Powerful explosives are hitting the southern Ukrainian city of Mykolaiv. The BBC's Joe Inwood reports from Kiev. The Russians have been claiming to have hit command posts, but that is not information that can be independently verified. They will always claim to have hit military targets. We don't really have a way without getting to the ground as the site of the attack to see exactly what has been hit. 
Over the past week, Russian missiles have killed dozens of people far from the front lines. Ukraine says Russia is stepping up its missile attacks on civilians to try to force Ukraine into peace talks. It's NPR News. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, we're celebrating frothy July with Farm and Country producers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Up first is a Star Talk report that salutes red, white, and blue. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. With Monday being July 4th, let us look at three patriotic stars one red, one white, and one blue. Our first stop in the sky will be at the heart of Scorpius. Antares will be visible in the southern sky at nightfall and will be visible until 2 a.m. It is a first magnitude star 550 light years away. Antares is a supergiant who is near the end of its life and has swelled to 700 times the diameter of the sun. Antares will be the only red star in the southern sky, which will make it easy to spot. Next, we will turn our gaze nearly directly overhead to the constellation Lyra. Vega is the brightest star in Lyra. It is a zero-magnitude star that will be shining white. Vega will be visible all night. The star is one-tenth as old as our sun, and is 25 light years away. Vega was the pole star several thousand years ago and will become the pole star again 12,000 years from now. Our last stop will be in the southwestern sky in the constellation Virgo. Spica is the brightest star in Virgo and lies 250 light years away. Even though it is the 16th brightest star in the sky, it can be a little hard to spot. We can use the Big Dipper to find Spica. Follow the handle stars as they arc to Arcturus, then speed on down to Spica. Virgo will be visible until 12.30 a.m. See if you can spot this patriotic trio of stars this week. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Here's Christine San Jose to recite poetry along the Poets Row. The Dalliance of the Eagles by Walt Whitman Skirting the river road, my forenoon walk, my rest, skyward in air, a sudden muffled sound, the dalliance of the eagles, the rushing amorous contact high in space together, the clinching interlocking claws, 
a living, fierce, gyrating wheel, four beating wings, two beaks, a swirling mass, tight grappling, in tumbling, turning, clustering loops, straight downward falling, till all the river poised, the twain yet one, a moment's lull, a motionless still balance in the air, then parting, talons loosening, upward again, on slow, firm pinions slanting, their separate, diverse flight, she hers, he his, pursuing. This has been Christine San Jose along the Poet Row for Farm and Country. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. My guest today is Marty Borco. If you're fortunate enough to go on a hike with Marty, he'll tell you all about the birds, the trees, the ferns, and the flowers that you see along the way. And today he's going to tell us about what you might see on a hike along the Neversink River. Marty, tell us about the Neversink Preserve. How do the plants and animals there differ from those in the Bashakil? Well, what you have there is you have a cold water stream, and as the stream changes from a higher elevation to a lower elevation, it's aerated, so it's a prime trout stream. When fly fishing was really uh, taking off in the United States, the first stream that had fishermen that, that used that technique really was the Neversink River. Right now, a lot of people go up to the to Roscoe area with the Willowy Mock and the Beaver Kill, but fly fishing is a sport that really developed in the Neversink Gorge area. Do you fish? I used to fish. I have a spinning outfit that's in the cellar that I haven't had in my hands for a few years. I think the last time I took my son fishing, Cayuta Creek, but it's been a while since I've used it to go fishing. I have a lifelong fishing and hunting license, though, so I can go any fishing, hunting, and trapping. So what plants are we going to see there, and how are those different from what you see in swampy areas? Well, you're going to see a lot of the same ones, but one of the ones that you could expect to see more of would be more hemlocks there. We don't see many hemlocks in the Bashak Hill, but you're going to see hemlocks because of the narrowness of the gorge, the colder temperatures that make trout water trout water. We're also going to see uh, sycamores. The sycamore tree is the tree that gets the attention of the state DEC uh, more nuisance calls than any other tree because people notice it for the first time in their lives. And when they do notice it, they notice that the bark is brown, it's white, it's gray, it's blotchy, and, and they want to know what's happening to this sick tree. But in fact, that's simply the natural bark of a sycamore. The sycamore happens to be really one of the hardest wooded trees we have, so that if you ever have a butcher block or saw a, an old butcher block, all the butcher blocks used to be made of sycamore because it is a hard wood, and you can pound on that really and not uh, split it or crack it or danger it whatsoever because of its character. And the sycamore is a tree that is late <clears throat> to come out with its leaves. 
A lot of people get nervous. They see the tree is hanging on, its bark doesn't look good, and the leaves are not out yet. We also would have, I should say, as far as what trees would be along beside the hemlocks and the sycamore, a river birch is another tree that would be there, along with maples. Do those river birches have white barks or gray barks? The river birches have a reddish-white bark that peels readily, so that we have, when it comes to the family of birches, we have five birches that occur in the state. The more northerly birch would be the yellow birch, and along with the yellow birch, a black birch. So those are two birches that are northerly birches. They, they occur in Sullivan County without question, and they're moving down into these wet areas along the Never Sink. You can find them both there. We can also find, in probability, an occasional white birch or paper birch. The birch that's most common spread over Sullivan County would be what we call the gray birch, which is a much smaller stature tree. doesn't get to be anything like the other ones. And then there's the river birch, which likes to grow along rivers, where it's very, very wet, more wet than other trees would be. So if we have a dry area, which you do have, wherever you have a gorge, you usually have a dry top somewhere, we would have oaks. We live actually in an area that's called an oak hickory climax forest. That's primarily it. We have a variety of oak trees. So we have red oak would be the dominant oak. A white oak would probably be the second most common. Another one would be black oak. And if it's very, very dry, then we have what is called chestnut oak. You know, many years ago, and even today, there is an insect called the gypsy moth, although they changed the name of the gypsy moth. I don't know, the gloomy moth or something else. The gypsy moth, its favorite food really is oak. They would devastate the trees, feed on the leaves. And then the biggest complaint that I've had over the years about it is that the caterpillars, which are eating the leaves, defecate. And when it's a real heavy infestation, you can actually hear the defecation. It's like rain coming down, and people would complain when they have oaks around their house that they were raining fecal material all around them all the time, and they didn't like that. But as far as the trees are concerned, if trees are in a healthy soil, a good condition, the trees relief. I did a study in Wurtsboro Hills where I photographed the oak trees and showed that with time, the trees grew their leaves, foliage was back, and the trees survived. But if there's a tree that is not getting enough water, enough nutrients, and it really is on a slim diet, then those trees are going to die. So you will have death of oak trees without question. But for the most part, the gypsy moth was not a real threat to the oak forest. And right now, as I understand it, the gypsy moths have good populations in certain parts of New York State. What about the tent caterpillars? What do they hatch out into? The tent caterpillars hatch out. Uh, the tent caterpillars make tents where branches come together or leave the trunk of the tree, and they make a web. They come out at night, usually, and feed on the leaves at night and then retreat to the web during the day. If they're really hungry and not getting enough to eat, they will be out during the day feeding. So you can tell the relative health of the tent caterpillars. The tent caterpillars specialize on cherries, on choke cherries, black cherries, apples, fruit trees, things of that sort. That would be their favorite food items for tent caterpillars. They really seem to defoliate the trees that they're on. 
they can really defoliate them. But again, even there, if the tree is in a good spot, it's not really a threat to the tree or to the shrub that's there. And there seem to be good seasons and bad seasons. I guess that's true for all of the caterpillars. There's no question about it. Again, climate, uh, weather patterns affect so many things. For instance, fungal diseases that would kill both the 10 caterpillars as well as the gypsy moth, depending on environmental conditions, the fungus may be rampant and kill them quickly, or it may be very dry and not be effective. So weather conditions have a great deal to do with how things survive. How do these trees reproduce? What strategies do they have to multiply? Well, that's an interesting thing that you bring up, uh, reproduction in trees. It's, it's a very interesting situation. We'll take the maple. We have lots of different maples. We have the sugar maple, the red maple. Then in the understory, we have other maples. Stripe maple is another understory uh, species. Most maples have a single maple-like leaf that people can easily identify. But we have a maple that's called box elder. And box elder is a maple. It's called box elder because the wood is really used only for boxes. It's a poor quality wood. It's sort of a shrubby tree. It never gets to be much of anything. And they have separate sexes so that you will have a box elder that's a male tree. You can have another box elder that's a female tree. The same thing is true for ash. You can have an ash tree that's on its way out, unfortunately, that's male or an ash tree that's female. In the case of a tree like a sugar maple, a sugar maple tree will have both male and female on the same tree and have both sexes. We have different terms. Biologists would have different terms. They would use the term monoecious, uh, one home that has both male and female flowers on the same tree, or dioecious, two homes, meaning you have separate trees. In any event, the most interesting one in my mind is the most common tree in the Bashik Hill called the red maple. The red maples are polygamodioecious. And polygamodioecious means that you don't know what you're going to get. The tree may be male, the tree may be female, the tree may have both sexes. You just have no idea. It may have flowers of different types on the same tree. You can have everything and anything with the red maple. It's just totally undefined, which maybe is one of the reasons why the red maple is so successful as a tree and is able to adapt to all kinds of environments. That's weird. So if you plant one red maple as a specimen tree, you may not get any offspring from it. That's true. That's possible that uh, that could happen, but the red maples are usually pretty good. You probably wouldn't uh, get a strictly male tree, but it's possible, most definitely. Yeah, you just don't know. Marty, if you hike along the Never Sink, what wildflowers are you likely to see? Well, the wildflowers along the Never Sink that one would get to see would be the mayapple would be there. You would see lots of also what we call mayflowers, Canada mayflowers. Can you tell us what they look like? <clears throat> Canada mayflower looks like a little a space, a little like a hand that's just, just raised up, a single leaf. It has a single leaf when it's young and growing, and then has two leaves when it's ready to flower. And when it flowers, it produces a little stem that comes up. And what color are the flowers? It has little white flowers and produces a little red fruit. You can eat the little red fruit, but there's not much there. <laughs> <laughs> As they say, let's be There's not much there. <laughs> okay, and the other one that you mentioned was the other flower? The Canada May, uh, May, uh, May apple, or uh, what was another name for May apple? In any event, May apple has a single leaf also when it's young, and when it's getting enough energy to fruit, 
It forms two leaves, and then the flower comes on those plants that have two leaves. Mandrake is the other name for May apple. It has an umbrella-like leaf. Each leaf of the single or the double leaf is, is like an umbrella and produces a nice, again, white seems to be the dominant color of all these flowers and produces a yellow fruit that if you can find it, if you can get enough of them, you can actually make a jam from the fruit of the mandrake. Do they have special places where these different flowers live, or some closer to the river, some with their feet in the water, some up on the cliffs? Where do you find them? No question that each one has a specific requirement. Usually when you're right along the stream, you're going to find the mosses along the stream, different species of mosses, and you're also going to find lots of fern. So if it's a really wet area, you're going to find different fern species, in particular the sensitive fern which has the separate reproductive leaf and a sterile leaf. So that's going to be probably the most common plant along a lot of the stream sides. It's going to be the sensitive fern. It's going to be violets. There are lots of violets all along streams, all along woods. We have many different species of violets that are going to be out there as well. Well, they may not be white. Some of them are white. Right. But... No, most of the violets are not going to be white. Most of the violets will be blue or purple. But there are white violets. I saw white violets today by the fishing area in Wurtsboro. When you're walking through the woods, you may be struck by a particularly beautiful plant. Are you likely to be able to transplant it and bring it home? And I'm thinking particularly about mountain laurels or jack-in-the-pulpits. They're wonderful plants. Uh, Usually they do not do well at home. It's possible to take a jack-in-the-pulpit and transplant it if you have a similar environment, real wet area. Jack in the pulpits have an interesting sexual history too. When they're young, they're male, and as they get older, it's possible that the jack in the pulpit can change into a female. A Jill in the pulpit. <clears throat> Jill in the pulpit, <laughs> which again is, is interesting in the general sense that reproduction takes lots of energy. It takes more time to build up a system that can afford to reproduce. And the females have the harder job than the males. The males produce the pollen, The females do most of the heavy investing in reproductive structures. That goes, in general, with many organisms, plants and animals. Are there any special habitats that you think are threatened, and what can we do to preserve them? Well, I feel very proud, actually, of having had some role in the protection of the Bashakil. When it comes to the Never Sink, I had served as uh, acting chairman of the Sullivan County Environmental Management Council when we stopped... Emerald Green from dumping sewage into the Neversink River, and we stopped the county from creating a landfill at Gildix in Bridgeville, and then worked with the state DEC with Commissioner Henry Diamond. Commissioner Henry Diamond flew down to meet with Ben Wexler. You ever hear of Wexler Coffee? Well, he had a coffee brand. That's where the money for the family came from, Wexler Coffee. And we met with Ben, but as I said, the Commissioner of Conservation I flew down for the special meeting that I was at to try to facilitate the purchase of Ben's hunting and fishing rights on the Neversink. And it didn't go too well, but it was something we tried to do. But in the end, the fishing rights, I guess, were condemned. And uh, now I think there's about 6,000 acres along the Neversink Preserve that is now available to the public for hiking and fly fishing or regular fishing. That's an asset for the county without question. Yeah, it's a wonderful resource for the county. So thanks to hike leader Marty Borco, now you know what to look for next time you set off on a trail along the Neversink River. 
I'd like to hear your ideas about topics for Now You Know segments. Email me at stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. This is your host, Rosie Starr. Hay farmer Leroy Canfield invited me to ride with him in this year's 2022 Calicone Tractor Parade. Before I hopped on his Massey Ferguson tractor, I spoke with Fred, who loves to share his enthusiasm for vintage machines. Here's a bit of what he had to say in mid-June in Calicone. Tell me your name. Fred Denbeck. Hi, Fred. We're at the Tractor Parade in Calicoon, and you seem to know a lot about Massey Ferguson, so tell me. Ferguson was originally a gray tractor. When Massey Harris acquired Ferguson, they had to determine what color it was going to be. So they determined it was going to be red and gray. It was going to be a green and a gray and one other color. They painted a number of tractors under Ferguson those colors. They went out to the farmers. The farmers liked the red and the gray, so when they changed the name to Massey Ferguson, that's how I got the red and the gray ones. In fact, one is, in fact there's, a, there's, a, there's a 50 out there. That was one of the other color combinations, a cream and a gray. Three, that's it. That's it right there. Three different color combinations, and the farmers decided what they wanted. And that's how Massey Ferguson got its red and gray. How do you know all of this? I love. I grew up around farms. <laughs> I grew up around farms my whole life, and we had a lot of Massey Fergusons down our way. John Deere was the most popular tractor because that was the biggest dealer. But there's still a lot of Massey Fergusons and Fergusons down there. It was so nice to speak with you. I hope that you keep spreading your knowledge and enthusiasm for tractors and so teach you got a kids. Ferguson hat, huh? Oh, that's because my buddy Leroy Canfield. He made sure that I was going to be in the parade with this Massey Ferguson. Fred. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, you too. Have a good day. Take care. Thank you. For WJFF Radio Catskill, it's Rosie Starr in Calicoon Tractor Parade. I'm just so excited. I Now, I would like to share my treat with you inspired by the 4th of July. I always feel so grateful to live in a community surrounded by farmland that produces a bounty of goodness. Recently, I was gifted a vintage parfait glass from our dear friend Joanne, who lives in Lackawaxen, Pennsylvania. It brought to mind a sweet summer memory of vanilla ice cream with assorted toppings. So, off I go to local markets and shops to score fresh strawberries from Good Fine Farms and Heller's Farm Market Stands, layered with blueberries from Maynard Farm 
and soon to be available at the Muller's Farm Stand in Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. Layer that with some Chobani yogurt from Pete's Market and vanilla ice cream from Beeline, sold at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. Three cheers for those layers of red, white, and blue sourced locally from both sides of the river. Yummy! We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, naturalist Marty Borco from Mamacating Environmental Center and Fred Dembeck from Montgomery for sharing his enthusiasm on vintage machines at the Calicoon Tractor Parade. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Set it off with your host, Clyde Alvin Yates III. Set it off. Saturday night at 7. Set it off. On Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Catskill. 